glad for Jesus. He is altogether wonderful and lovely. Romans chapter 12, and we'll be in verses 9 through 16, and if you will please, as is our custom, we stand and honor the reading of God's Word. If you get nothing else but you hear the Word of God read aloud, you are better because you've heard the Word of God. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless the reading of your word. For these next few moments, would you please help us to focus upon your word? We invite you here, and we ask that you would speak through me and speak to us. That each one of us would be changed. That we would go out of here having been renewed, Lord, leaving, having been revived into a hostile world that needs the gospel, that needs to see men and women of God. I pray for your power and for your spirit and for your help, for I cannot do this without you. Lord, we love you and we praise your holy name. In the name above all other names, the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. We are living in an ever-increasingly divisive society. I want to make a statement that may shock, shock you, but we're no longer a Christian culture. We would like to think that we are a Christian culture, but we're not. Some of the things of the past that Christians have done to make themselves uh, stand out or to make themselves identified as Christians no longer works. Things that we have relied on no longer have meaning because we're not dealing with a Christian nation. We're dealing with a predominantly pagan nation. I uh, read a survey and I think some 38% of evangelical pastors... 38% do not believe that all of the Scripture is God-breathed and all Scripture is the Word of God. I'm not talking about church people. I'm talking about professing pastors. And we're distracted by the devil and his agenda and we try to do things from a fleshly standpoint and we miss what God is wanting to do in our midst and among us. 
Church is so much more than some people think it to be. The people sitting around you are so much more than just acquaintances. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, according to the eternal word of God, he or she sitting around you is your brother or sister in Christ. We are knit together in the family of God by the cross of Calvary. Christ dwells in us. God saved us and placed us into this family, this local congregation, assembly, church, ecclesia, called out assembly. It's what it means. It's a gathering. It's not the building, it's us. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I stand before you in the authority of the word of God and tell you that it is God's will that we love one another. And if you and I are going to be dedicated Christians... We have to be committed to loving one another. How you and I treat each other matters to God. It matters to God. Jesus didn't say, by the big cross you wear around your neck, will all men know that you're my disciples. He didn't say, the bigger the Bible, the better the disciple you are. He said one thing, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So it's a huge deal. Jesus Christ himself says how important it is. And the big idea of this sermon is dedicated Christians are loving Christians devoted to one another for the glory of God. That's what a dedicated Christian is. I grew up in a day and an age, and I don't like to live in the past, but I grew up in a day and age where church meant something. And if a brother or sister had a need, there was someone there that was more than willing and able to meet that need. Now everybody expects to be paid. There was a time when People in the church did things together after church. There was a time when neighbors would be neighborly and sit on porches and talk to each other. Now everybody wants property away from everyone else. We've taken a shift in our culture from relational living to isolationism. And it's not healthy. It's not good. As a matter of fact, it was God that said, It is not good that man should be alone. There's a television show called Alone, and they take these people out and they live on an island and they have to live alone. And overwhelmingly, all of those people that struggle, struggle more than struggling finding food and all that, they struggle with the isolationism. It's just... It's devastating. Our relationships, we don't even talk on the phone. Your phone in your pocket will do everything but make a phone call. Have you ever noticed that? You keep your calendar, you can watch videos, you can literally buy tickets, you can do anything in the world you want, but if you try to make a phone call, it drops a signal. And we've moved away from relationships, even in the church. There's a pressure 
made by comments, but people, you know, about, you know, man, the church is getting long or might be a little bit too long. You know, we might have to cut some things out. And Why? So we can go sit on our telephones and watch TikTok videos, which to me is stupid anyways. I'm just, for me, I'm not saying for you, for me. I deal enough with time management. I don't need to add something else to it. And all the while, we're missing out on what God has given us, the gift of a brother or sister in Christ. The person next to you is a gift from God. Well, so-and-so gets on my nerves. Well, I'm sure you get on someone else's nerves as well. I don't want anybody to tell me how many people's nerves I get on. But we moved away from that church, and we're not the better for it. We're not the better for it. Let me start by giving you the definition of brotherly love. Paul, in another passage, is going to define for us what brotherly love is. In this passage, he begins in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. There's a qualifier for all this. Don't just pretend to love. Genuinely love one another. Can we be honest? Has anyone here ever pretended to love someone? All five or six of you are telling the truth, and the rest might have a sore shoulder. You didn't want to raise your hand, we know. But he tells us not to just pretend that we love. Remember how years ago people would say something derogatory about someone, and then they would end the phrase with, bless their heart? Like that made it sanctified if you, bless their heart. So-and-so's an idiot, bless his heart. Paul says, don't pretend to love. Genuinely love people. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Three parts to this. Number one, a pure heart. Pure means clean. Why do we have to have a clean heart to have love for one another. I'll tell you because the Bible says out of the issues of the heart you act and you speak out of what's in your heart. I was playing in a golf outing one time and I was with a fellow and he was foul mouthed. He'd make a sailor blush. And he found out as a pastor and he said you'll have to pardon my French. I said brother that's not French. And he said something else. And he said, well, I just can't control it. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe, I believe you get your heart right and you can control it. Because what's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, the Bible says. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Your heart can and will affect your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm not talking about the the, the heart, the organ in your body that's pumping blood. I'm talking about the seat of your intellect, your emotion, and your will. The very inside of you. Timothy says, 
If we're going to have love for one another, we have to have a pure heart. Secondly, he says we have to have a clear conscience. Your conscience is the faculty by which you apprehend the will of God. Your conscience also helps you make moral decisions. Your conscience affects your relationships. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, if we're going to have love, we have to have a clear conscience. And then he says a genuine faith. Your faith will affect your relationships. Your genuine or real faith will cause you to commit to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Guys, listen to me. Faith is merely taking God at His word. If His word says it, you obey it, and that is how you exhibit faith. It's not something you just create up on your own and then go out and say, God bless it. No, that's not faith. Faith is doing believing what God said will happen. And if God says to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you do that, you are exhibiting faith in His Word. It's important. You know, in another passage, Paul gives us the description of love. And you're used to this passage of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1-8, through 8, but if you would, just allow, allow me to read it. Just, just stop what you're doing for a second and just listen to the words. Because sometimes we are so familiar with the Word of God that it, we, we, don't, we don't hear its full effect. Listen to this. If I could speak all, all, with all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a no, noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such a faith that I could move mountains but did not love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I gave to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful. And endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless. But the love, but love, but love, I'm emphasizing that, but love will last forever. That's the kind of love that you and I are to have for one another in this congregation, in this fellowship. Now we go to verse number 9 and Paul begins to show us our devotion to one another. If dedicated Christians are devoted to one another, let's see how he lays this out. Again, I want to repeat, this is a genuine love. This is not pretending to love someone, it's a genuine love. Notice what he says, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine or real. And then he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. 
When you and I abhor, which means that we hate or loathe or disgust or can't, we avoid evil, it's an act of love. How so? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you love your children? Would you allow your children to participate in evil when they're under your under your wings, I guess I should say? Absolutely not. Why? Because you love them. You want them to abhor evil because you know what evil will do to them. And so, right from the get-go, what we see Paul is framing for us is this idea that when I love you, I care more about you and your well-being than I do about my own way. Which is hard. Because in each and every one of us is selfishness. You don't have to teach children. Have you ever noticed that kids want the toy the other kid has? They'll fight over that toy. Why? Because by nature they are selfish and it only magnifies as adults. And Paul says this is the attitude we're to have. Now, with that in mind, look at verse 10 with me. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Paul is going to show us how we can love one another, and he says the very first way is we are to give preference to one another in honor. In other words, if I'm going to love my brother and sister in Christ, and it's not sin, it's right for me to defer to their preference. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. You're telling me that I have to to, uh, think more about what they think than what I think? That's what Paul says. And you can do what you want to do. I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm just a messenger. It's not my job to police anything. It's my job to report what the Word of God says. There's no buts in this. There are no addendums. There are no footnotes. It's clear. Paul says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. If we're ever going to love one another, we have to learn to give preference to one another. Your needs are more important than my desires. Bottom line. It's getting kind of quiet. Number two. Verse 11. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We are to remain consistent. See, what the world needs to see is some consistency in Christianity, right? Whenever they interview someone, obviously in the news, they get someone that is totally whacked out and has weird things about Christianity. And the watching world only gets to see what the media frames Christianity to be. And... What has happened is the church has stopped being salt and light outside these walls. We stopped loving one another, serving one another, making a difference in one another's lives because we're so enamored with ourselves and the things that we want to do that we're no longer standing out in the world. Fact of the matter is, you could perhaps go to the local bar and get more camaraderie and more compassion from a fellow drinker at the bar than you could in some local churches. And that's a sad thing. 
He says we're to remain consistent. We're not to be lagging in diligence. Let me just give you a word for that lazy. We're not to get lazy in our love for one another. Right? Well, sister so-and-so is a widow and she doesn't have help, but you know what? She's got some cousins down the road. They can take care of that. No, we're growing lazy. We're to remain consistent. This is something that we don't have peaks and valleys. This is something that we cultivate to be a flat line. It's consistent. And the world needs to see consistency in our love for one another. Notice what else he says. Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Rejoicing in hope when we're consistent and someone is hoping for something, we ought to be rejoicing with them. When someone is going through tribulation, we ought to be patient with them. You know what I found as a pastor? I found it's very easy for me to sit on my side of the desk and look at people who are going through trust, uh, difficulty and say, trust the Lord. I'm not facing what they're facing. I'm over here and I'm giving them counsel, trust the Lord. When really, in actuality, I should be on the other side of the desk with them, being patient with them in their tribulation, suffering with them. That's what it means to love. And we ought to be consistent in that. He also says, continuing steadfastly in prayer, we're to serve the Lord together in prayer. Devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Anybody else here? Max Lucado wrote a book on prayer, and he came to the conclusion that he is a recovering prayer wimp. Is anyone else? I, I can identify with that. I mean, I'm, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'm downright embarrassed of my prayer life. You're embarrassed of my prayer life? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I'm teasing, Bill. I love you. Uh, you should be embarrassed of my prayer life. Um, but I'm downright embarrassed about my prayer life. When someone comes to you and says, Brother, pray for me, do you know how huge that is? And oh, do we take it for granted? I got to the place in my life one time when people would say, Pastor, would you pray? Oh, let's pray right now because I'll forget. Anybody else have a forgetful mind? Yes. But do we understand how huge it is when someone comes to us and says, please pray for me, please pray for this going on? What, a, what an opportunity to love one another. What an opportunity to share Christ and the love of Christ with each other. We must be devoted in prayer. He continues and says, verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. We're to be supportive of each other. And I want to put these in reverse order. Being hospitable is important. You don't get 
a pass to be a jerk because you're a fundamental Baptist. Growing up, it seemed like to me, the meaner the preacher was, the more biblical he was. It wasn't until I started reading the Bible and the Bible started talking about the fruit of the Spirit and how meek and lowly Jesus was and how we're to walk like Jesus and we're not supposed to think that we're anything else. And we're to have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, meekness, temperance, self-control, all these things. We're supposed to have these things as a Christ follower. It takes no more effort to be nice and kind to people than it does to be an absolute jerk. And in Christianity... It's almost like we, we relish in the fact that we're sinners saved by grace. Well, we're just a sinner. I, I just can't help it. I'm a jerk. No, listen. You are no longer a sinner. You're a saint. Paul says you're a saint or you're an ain't. And if you're a saint in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the command of Scripture to be hospitable. To be hospitable. I've heard of churches where visitors come and someone will look at them and say, you're sitting in my seat. Your seat? I think it belongs to Jesus. We were at the other church one time and we were trying to raise money for the parking lot. We wanted to pave the parking lot and it was a rather large parking lot. And we had a campaign where everybody, we divided it up into parking spaces and everybody would buy a parking space and it would be good. One fellow wasn't going to give his until he got his defined parking space. You've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point. We are to be hospitable. If we're going to love one another, be hospitable. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. If you get up on the wrong side of bed, it might do you well to just watch it online next Sunday. It might do the whole congregation well. Rather than you offending three or four people, it might do you well to just stay home until you get your attitude right with God. This given to hospitality is not a suggestion. It's a command in Scripture. And guys, listen to me. At some point, we got to let culture quit telling us that we can't talk about the hard things and we can't do the hard things because we're Christians. That's baloney. Either we believe the Word of God or we don't. And if we believe the Word of God, then let's obey it. If you don't believe the Word of God, don't obey it. But it's between you and God. But being hospitable is a command of the Scriptures. And then he says also, that we are to distributing to the needs of the saints, meeting each other's needs. Now, obviously, this is not taking on someone and paying their bills and et cetera and, and giving them an excuse to be lazy. This is a genuine need. If someone has a need, we are, as a church, are going to try to help fulfill that need. And I think our church does a good job at that, but we could always grow in that area. Bless those who persecute you, verse 14. Bless and do not curse. Wow. This is one that every one of us is going to struggle with. And the longer 
we live upon this earth, the worse it's going to get because the Bible teaches us that evil will grow worse and worse. Evil will wax worse and worse, what Scripture says, until this Christ raptures the church out. And as we are becoming a minority in this country and all these other pagan ideas are coming forth, it's nothing new to God. The early church dealt with it. If you study church history, we are perhaps the least persecuted generation of all early churches. We don't know what it's like to hide in a basement and have one or two pages of scripture to memorize for fear that if we're caught, we'll be beheaded or burned at the stake. Most of us have maybe one or two copies of the scriptures in our home on the shelves. But there's coming a time when people will begin to persecute us and what we need less of is a shouting match and we need more of the power of God and we need to be fighting the battles like Christ wants us to fight. Insulting people's ignorance of the gospel is not going to lead them to the gospel. It's sticking with the gospel message, praying for them, asking God to bless them in the form of salvation. That's what's going to make the difference. Not fighting back and forth. Now, I agree, make your stand. Don't, don't waver on your stand for biblical convictions. But fight the way God tells us to fight. In His power, in His Spirit, on our knees, with the glorious gospel. That's how we fight. Because no one's going to read my Facebook post and change their mind. It hasn't happened in the history of Facebook. Oh, I never thought about that. I'm going to change. No. But there have been countless people that have heard the gospel and believed and came to the winning side because of the power of the gospel and the power of God unto salvation. So we have to pray for those and bless those who persecute us. Verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We must weep with one another and we must rejoice with one another. I wish church were not this way. Someone purchases a vehicle or something. And rather than people being excited for that individual, they tear them down. Well, so and so must have got this, must have got that. Boy, rich uncle must have died or something, you know. And heaven forbid, why can't you just rejoice with them and be happy? Because you're selfish, because you don't have what they have. And you could probably have one if you want their payment book. I remember uh, my mother had a Cadillac, back before, or, or not a Cadillac, a Lincoln, before she died. And a big maroon Lincoln. And my dad's friend had bought it off of them. And when he was ready to sell it, I was nostalgic and I wanted it. So I bought it. I hit every curb in Huntington with that big old thing. I remember we were, Amy and I, were, we were doing the teens at the time, and we had a, a Christmas dinner, and I'd hauled ham and stuff in the trunk. It had a trunk with eight bodies, I think. But anyways, <coughs> uh, 
Some of that ham juice spilled out, and I didn't know it. Man, I'd be driving down the road on a summer day. I'm thinking, man, I'm getting hungry. I smell ham, you know, and for weeks. But I remember I struggled with that. It had a lot of miles. I think I, 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 think I borrowed four or $5,000 to buy. It wasn't much. And people in the church, because I was the youth guy, because I had a Lincoln, we were paying them too much. And I remember some wise person said, son, if they say that, just take them to the payment book and say, you can have one too if you make the payments just like I am. But I remember that distinctively. I remember that. Why can't we rejoice with those who rejoice? I mean, we all like to have little uh, rivalries between the schools, but if these boys from Portsmouth do something, we ought to rejoice with them. We ought to be their biggest fans. They ought to know that even though I'm a Minford Falcon, but they come to church, my pastor is going to be excited because I scored a touchdown or I did this. Hallelujah. And the Berg, even the Berg. That is Christ. That is becoming Christ-like, isn't it? No, I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> But we ought to do that, guys. We ought to champion these. We ought to be rejoicing with these kids when they do something. The world makes all over them at the school, and the church are like, you know. We ought to do that. We ought to weep with those who weep. You know what? Pride has infiltrated the church, and we don't even know it. There were times growing up, I remember people at the altar weeping because they had an issue. And rather than the church being judgmental, there were people down there putting their arm around them, weeping with them. Just weeping with them. We need to learn that. I'm reminded of the elderly couple, a young family moved in beside them. And they had a young girl, this young couple had a young girl and she befriended this older couple she would go over and see the woman the woman would give her lemonade and take care of her and do things and they had kind of an uncommon friendship well the lady elderly lady passed away and the little girl wanted to go to the funeral home and they went to the funeral home and the little girl left her mother and daddy and went over and climbed up on the gentleman's lap the widower's lap and the parents just watched from afar, and she sat there for a while. And later, the dad said, hey, honey, what did you say to Mr. So-and-so? She said, Daddy, I didn't say anything. I just climbed up on his lap and cried with him. Oh, the Bible says, and a child shall lead them. Amen. We become so self-centered, we can't take time to weep with someone. You know, maybe we could weep a little more. Tom Malone said, it would do us men good to weep. It might wash away some of our pride. And then lastly, he tells us this. Be of the same mind, verse 16, toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. I think one translation says you're really not that smart. You're really not that good. We're to live in harmony. We're to live in harmony. 
If you know anything about engines or motors, you know that there are cylinders. And all those cylinders have, I won't go through the cycles, different cycles, but if all those cylinders are not firing in the correct order, it's called a misfire. And a misfire, you have terrible gas mileage, and sometimes the motor won't even run. It's, it's, it's just not good in any stretch of the imagination. In the church, when we don't have harmony, when some of us are misfiring, it's not good in any way. I would like to stand up here and tell you that uh, I am an expert in this. I would love to stand up here and tell you that I am good at this. I would love to stand up here and tell you that I've mastered this, but I haven't. I read this passage of Scripture, and I'm convicted because I need to grow in this area. Be of the same mind one toward another. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't treat people differently because what they have and what they don't have. Something that's been under, I've been un, extremely under conviction about is we don't serve this community. New Boston and Clay is our community. And we try to cherry pick from different people from different schools. And we don't do anything in this community. And God's convicted me. I was driving through New Boston and praying that God would give me wisdom. And I've talked to some people at the school trying to get into, like, maybe I can go down to the school this school year, maybe once every couple of weeks and do a Bible club. I got some folks on the inside trying to help me there. I've been talking to, I'm going to talk to Steve Hamilton, the village administrator, about ways that we can reach out to the community and serve the community. We need to look beyond and see that every person has a soul. And that every person is going to spend an eternity in heaven or hell. And that Jesus Christ died for every person. And that we treat everyone the same. Regardless of what they have or what they don't. How they look, how they dress matters not. We do this because we love Jesus. And this is what Jesus wants us to do. And when we do this, we're avoiding arrogance and pride and we're humbling ourselves and we're saying, listen, I'm going to serve people no matter what. Even if I get nothing out of it, I'm going to do it because Jesus asked me to do it in his word. Guys, this is what the world is not seeing this is what Jesus meant when he said, By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This is what he means when he's talking about dedicated Christians are, are devoted to loving one another for the glory of God. You cannot be a dedicated Christian and not love your brother or sister in Christ. As a matter of fact, from the words of John, how can you say you love God in whom you haven't seen when you don't love your brothers and sisters in whom you have seen? So we run around talking about how we love Christ. Our love for Christ will never be more or as much as we love each other. 
And if we stand in this congregation and we say, Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you, but we don't love our brothers and sisters, we're simply lying. And that's the word of God. That's not me. In our churches, we've, devote, we've moved to trickery and gimmickry where we're going to do all these things to try to attract people. Why don't we do just what Jesus told us to do? Why don't we just love each other and love the world enough to share the gospel with them? And if we do that, He, in fact, will do what He said He will do. I will build my church, Jesus speaking, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, His church. Not our concert venues, not our uh, dog and pony, horse and pony show, none of that. Genuinely loving one another. Don't just pretend, Paul says. Genuinely love one another. Because dedicated Christians are devoted to each other, loving one another for the glory of God. Would you join me in prayer?